Okay, so we're moving on to Act 3, Scene 12, uh, the aftermath of uh, Antony's decision to send message to, to Caesar, essentially. Um, so in this scene, Caesar is informed that Antony's ambassador is a humble schoolmaster and he doesn't um, appreciate the... He sees it as essentially a sign of shame um, or, or insult that Antony dared deem someone of not a higher status to come and deliver the message to Caesar. Um, so in this, uh, we we see his response um, and we'll go through it chronologically. So if you have the scene open and um, I'll try where I can to reference particular lines. So Dolabella describes uh, how it is the schoolmaster, an argument that he has plucked when hither he sends so poor opinion of his wing, which had superfluous kings for messengers not many moons gone by. So Dolabella Bella reminds us that um, th this is a bit of an insult and essentially um, that, you know, Antony has fallen. He used to send kings um, to deliver his messages and now he sends a mere schoolmaster. And um, what we kind of see there is essentially two people of vast um, statuses kind of apart is, is what's suggested there. And it helps to emphasise how Antony's kind of fallen from grace or how Caesar has also fallen in Antony's estimation. Um, so if we uh, flick over into the next page, the ambassador comes in um, and he uses a simile at one point. He says, uh, such as I am, I come from Antony. I was of late as petty to his ends as the mourn due to the myrtle leaf to his grand sea. So that simile essentially, it dismisses um, his his kind of importance compared to Antony. Um, but uh, it also is a bit of an insult to Caesar at this point. Um, and if we look down, essentially, what, what's what's Antony requesting? Um, and Caesar refuses Antony's requests. Um, he asks for, um, he requires to live in Egypt. Um, he lessens his requests uh, to let him breathe between the heavens and the earth, a private man in Athens, this for him. So that's what he's asking for. Um, and essentially saying, you know, we'll relinquish our land um, and uh, titles and de defect, de uh, defeat, admit defeat to Caesar. And that's essentially what Cleopatra will do. Submits her to thy might and of thee craves the circle of the Ptolemies for her heirs. Um, so essentially just give me uh, the Ptolemy regions so I can give that on to my sons, but everything else I'll relinquish to Caesar. So that's kind of the demands. Caesar, um, in his response says, for Antony, I have no ears to his request. So there's an utter dismission and, re and refusing uh, to accept Antony's requests. Um, but he says he will agree to Cleopatra's terms. However, there is a, a, a kind of a, a but. He says that she must either exile or kill Antony. So she says, um, from Egypt, drive her all disgraced friend or take his life there. So there is a consequence. Um, and what we might be wanting to think about in this bit is why? Why are those the terms that Caesar wishes? Um, so not listening to Antony, but what's his agenda in making Cleopatra do that? Is it to, to test the strength of their love? Will she do that? Would she ever consider it? Um, is it again another humiliating blow for Antony? Um, or is this just vindictive revenge? So it's just there are multiple ways that this could be read. The ambassador then goes back to bring through the message and we see Caesar on his uh, own for a moment and then speaking to his attendant. So to Thidius, he says, to try thy eloquence now his time dispatch. So he, he's about to send Thidius to go and speak to Cleopatra. And he says, from Antony, win Cleopatra. Promise and in our name what she requires, add more from thy intervention offers. So essentially we might be thinking, well, why? Why does um, Antony want Caesar from, from Cleopatra? 
would he prefer exile so then he can do with Antony what he wishes? Um, is it that he wants Antony dead? It's not It's not explicitly clear. Um, is this essentially petty vengeance? Um, and what we get a sense is that, you know, promise what she requires, we have to maybe start to question of, do we think that he will play through with what he promises or do we trust him in a sense um, and there's there's a sense of kind of um uneasiness i think about that um he says and again another not another lovely misogynistic line from caesar women are not in their best fortunes strong but want will perjure the ne'er touch vestal so in other words that you know women even when they're in their best fortune so even women on a good day are not strong. So essentially assuming that women are weak, that they are easily corrupt. He has a really low value or low opinion of women, and that's a repeated idea. This kind of misogyny or sexism that exists within this world. Um, we might be able to think, does he underestimate Cleopatra's strength and fortitude of character? Probably. And actually, yes, he does. Um, so he even uses that phrase, you know, try thy cunning Thidias as well, it suggests, you know, treachery or spy or manipulation or decep deception in some way. So again, it, it throws into question whether or not we believe Caesar's um, kind of ventures here, or if he's got an ulterior motive that's much more une uneasy to kind of consider. Um, so Thidias says, Caesar, I go. And there's that last line of observe how Antony becomes his flaw. Um, and ultimately, what we need to remember is with Caesar is sentimentality and emotion will not interfere with his political decisions. So even if he and Antony have, you know, went back way, way, way back, they've got some type of blood tie, they've got, you know, his admiration for Antony as a political or military leader, sentiment and emotion will not govern Caesar's political decision. He is stone cold. Um, however, that might be key to his success. And that's how Act 3, Scene 12 plays out. Um, so Act 3, Act 3, Scene 13, we have that shift to Cleopatra's palace. And we are aware of the, the kind of dramatic irony underpinning this scene. We, we are aware of Thidius's intentions, of Caesar's intentions before Cleopatra or Antony are. And that does govern how we view this scene as an audience. Um, so Cleopatra asks Enobarbus at the beginning, is she to blame for the defeat? Um, and Enobarbus blames Antony for allowing his emotion to override his reason. And then Antony tells Cleopatra of Caesar's answers to her requests. So that's how the beginning of the scene plays out. So Cleopatra, you know, contemplates their next move in that opening sentence. What shall we do, Enobarbus? Um, and Enobarbus's response is, think and die. Um, and it's a really interesting short sentence, um, ominous, uneasy. Um, is there a sense that he's given up at this point? Is it also somewhat prophetic? Because that's what he does in his sides as he kind of thinks and then he's going to die. That seems to be what other characters are doing as well, thinking and then dying. Um, so there is something to consider there. He is a bit of the truth teller. We've looked at his role within the, the wider play. And she says, is Antony or we in fault for this? In other words, is it our, my fault? Is it our fault? Is it his fault? And Enobarbus clearly lands the flaw at Antony's feet only. He says, Antony only. That would make his will lord of his reason. So will meaning passion. So essentially it was his own hot-headed 
arrogance and ego that led him to this decision. We tried to stop him and he didn't listen. So it's his fault. Um, and he sh he's right, pretty much. Um, so there are there's that rhetorical question, you know, what though you fled from that great face of war whose several ranges fronted each other? Why should he follow? In other words, of course, it was going to be in your reaction that you were going to run away. Um, but why should he follow you, essentially? Um, and it's it's suggested that, you know, desire and affection and love have blinded his reason and his military judgment, essentially. Um, and that rhetorical question really picks up on that. He says the itch of his affection should not then have nicked his captainship at such a point. And that's what's the problem. It was a, something that he felt kind of... Um, he needed to scratch, essentially, whereas actually it um, cut everything of the, that, that was strong about him, which was his captainship, his military prowess. Um, and essentially, he did it at the point in which half to half the world opposed, he being the mere question as well. Um, and it was a shame, no loss, no less than was his loss. So a huge implication and consequence to Antony's small decisions of itching, if that makes sense. Um and Cleopatra, you know, pretty peace. She asks him to be quiet. Is that because she sees the ambassador entering with Antony? And what we see in this scene is a bit of a role reversal. Um, is that in this scene, it is Cleopatra that is much more cool and restrained uh, in comparison to the anger and rage and emotion of Antony. Um, and that is a real reversal. And actually, this scene, which we know what he's about to do to Thidius, um, the the kind of they are characters in many ways of oppositions but also similarities um, and we will talk about that further once we um, really get to, to grips with their characters but it's just something to maybe think about and in terms of um, ideas that we've looked at so far where can you think of some of their similar traits and where can you see some of their differing traits and here it might be worthwhile thinking about why does Shakespeare flip it in, in many different ways um so is this his answer? Um, and we know what it is as well. So there is this tension because you know we're waiting for, for him to tell the news for Cleopatra and we're waiting to see his reactions. Um, and Antony is essentially quite derogatory about Caesar. He says, to the boy Caesar, send this grizzled head, in other words, his, and he will fill thy wishes to the brim with principalities. So he knows that Caesar's... Um, message is designed to drive a wedge between him and Cleopatra. He's acutely aware that that's its function. And now he's telling Cleopatra, it's a measurement of, well, what are your thoughts? What are your feelings on it? Is she going to save herself? Um, or is she going to save both of them? And what will be the consequences of that as well? So the, you know, the consequences are, are huge and enormous. Um, so this is a really important scene. And even Cleopatra, that head, my lord, in other words, no, I could never do that. And we know that she wouldn't be able to do that either. Um, and there is, he goes on a bit of a rant, essentially, of, of what are the other uh, things within the, the, the message that Caesar's asked for. Um, and he said, his coin, ships, legions may be a cowards whose ministers would prevail under the service of a child as soon as in the command of Caesar. Um, really derogatory. He's described Caesar a few times as, as being a child or a boy. And again, kind of essentially feeling um, like a, a, his reputation is entarnished, ruined, because he's been publicly humiliated by some by a child. Um, so that's that's kind of what what's plays out in this little bit. Um, and even there, then he turns, and we know it's probably not the not a really useful way for Anthony to move forward, but he says, I dare him. 
therefore to lay his gay comparisons apart and answer me sword against sword ourselves alone now Anthony essentially is like right put this all aside let him fight me man to man now we're thinking as an audience that shows that Anthony is maybe hot-headed angry that this is you know between two men rather than a, a great political or social differences um but also we might be thinking well Anthony why would he take up that dare because he we know that Caesar is very intelligent very astute he's not a fighter um he's not going to win against Anthony hand to hand why would he give up all of these wins to suit Antony's ego. It seems foolish, but it seems to be that those things are kind of blinding Antony's uh, emotional state at this point. And even Ina Barbas informs that in his aside. So we as an audience kind of agree with him. He says, yes, like enough, high-battled Caesar will unstate his happiness and be staged to the show against disorder. And um, it's scornful and mocking of Antony's idea, just as we are as an audience. It's a stupid concept that um, Caesar would ever be dared to fight hand-to-hand. -hand. Um, and even that kind of mention of, you know, that Antony should dream, knowing all measures, the fool Caesar will answer his emptiness as well. So that kind of, that ultimately, um, he knows that Antony's being foolish or being reckless and not making wise or sensible decisions at this point. Um, and it's a suggestion in his last line. He says, Caesar, thou hast subdued his judgment too. He's saying that it's not just Cleopatra that blinds his judgment, as he warned um, prior to the Battle of Actium, but actually his rivalry with Caesar as well has also blinded his judgment. That Antony is also disregarding, you know, the, the message from the soothsayer. And Ina Barbus, there's a bit of a conflict at this point in his character because does he... He's, sh he's showing a struggle between loyalty and honour to his captain and actually that of self-interest and is it wise to follow someone who's making foolish and irrational decisions and that comes into play. So the servant comes in and even Cleopatra mentions what? No more ceremony. He just enters, no flourish, no train, no nothing and ultimately she, he, she treats this with some type of contempt and uh, there is a lack of kind of courtesy and it shows disrespect from Caesar to the Queen of Egypt in many ways so we have to think about the gameplay and the um the, the kind of visual pa pageantry and ostentation and what that means in the public court and it means a lot and that essentially is kind of underpinned in, in this scene as was in the scene with Caesar and Octavius or Octavia sorry um so Enobarbus another aside so again remember we're getting insight into what's going on in his head and those struggles and he says mine honesty and I begin to square so what I should do in terms of my head and my heart um his heart's telling him he should stay loyal to his captain that's his duty as a, in, in the military but it's also his head is telling him that Antony's making the wrong decision. Do I leave him and thus save myself? Other people have done it. Um, shooting a Barbus. And that's what he's really struggling with. And he says, the loyalty well held to fools does make our faith mere folly. And again, that contemplating of, you know, loyalty to a fool, i.e. Antony, makes his faith and loyalty seem foolish and stupid. That's kind of what that, um, what that imagery uh, connotes. Thidius comes in. 
and essentially relays Caesar's message again. There is an un, slightly uneasiness between him and Cleopatra. Um, is it because there's been message of how she reacts to messengers? Potentially. Is it because Antony is in the room and he will hear this as well? Does he want to potentially relay this privately? Um, so there's a bit of a deception going on. It, it shifts everything. So he does do that pause before, you know, tell us. And he says, so. Thus then thou must renowned. So there is essentially then he goes through the message. Um, we have to remember Antony, you know, essentially will be... Oh no, sorry, Antony's gone by this point. So um, it, it's essentially a, a bit of a... I suppose the, the uneasiness comes from where we're trying to measure of how does he read Cleopatra? Is she going to believe the sentiments? Is she going to... Um, accept the terms of the of the conditions. Um, is she going to rail against them? So that's kind of what the, the the tension in this comes into play. And Thaddeus kind of feeds her a story in many ways that Caesar might want to hear. You know, so Caesar entreats not to consider in what case thou stands further than he is Caesar. Um, he knows that you embrace not Antony as you did love, but as you feared him. So there's a manipulation in the language there. And actually what he's doing is, is he's giving her a way out. Um, you, you're terrified of him and it's not love, essentially. That's why you're embracing him now. Her response of, oh, depends on how the actress plays this. Is it genuine shock? Is it ironic? Is it inquisitive? It depends on how it's played. Um, we're, she doesn't automatically bat it away. So we're starting to question will Cleopatra actually betray Antony is she in this relationship for self-gain and self-interest or is it more than that and as an audience we're hoping it's more than that um, it seems to be that you know yes she's gaining massively in terms of reputation and, and uh, land and uh, political status and regal status through her relationship with Antony but surely it must be more than that. And that's what we're hoping for. Um, he uses this kind of imagery of uh, does pity as constrained blemishes, not as deserved. So in other words, it's this kind of, uh, you know, the blemishes that are on you now are not deserved. It's from someone else has done this on you. And Cleopatra's response is really striking for us as an audience. He's, she says, he is a god and knows what is most right. Mine honour was not yielded, but conquered merely. Um, so she flatters Caesar, calls him a god, and that, you know, her honour wasn't yielded, but conquered. So she didn't give it, but it was taken. And actually, we as an audience are curious as to, is this a truthful admission? Is it another manipulative um, admission? Does she Has she clued on to what Thaddeus is trying to do? Is she... We know she's intelligent. We know she's perceptive. We know she's highly manipulative. I think she's definitely got the measure of what Caesar's trying to do. I don't think she's a fool whatsoever. I feel, personally, she's manipulating, essentially, to gather time and to think about their plan and what their actions are going to be on with, uh, for, further as they, as they move on. Um, and Enobarbus hears all of this. And, you know, he says, to be sure of that, I will ask Antony. So there, again, that kind of, um, he needs to double check that is, the, is, is she being truthful? Is she being honest? Is that Antony's intentions? Was that the relationship? Um, but it also suggests, if Enobarbus has taken her seriously, that he 
he's given even more of a reason to leave Antony because it seems on the surface as if that she's going to abandon him. And he uses this metaphor of thou art so leaky that we must leave thee to thy sinking. So that metaphor of alluding to Antony as a ship and them as rats escaping the sinking ship, essentially. And he makes the... Um, the decision that he he's he's going to kind of quit thee, and he says, "Thy dearest, quit thee." In other words, your love, love of your life, Cleopatra's going to quit you. All your other men have quit you. I'm thinking of doing it. We need to leave. I'm abandoning him. Um, so that kind of comes into play, and uh, that Antony is being left alone, albeit undeservedly so. This is all part of potentially Caesar's manipulation and Enobarbus's misreading of Cleopatra's intentions. So Thidias exit Enobarbus, and it becomes just this moment between Cleopatra and Thidias. He's like, what shall I say to Caesar? Um, if it warms, him, it would warm his spirits to hear from you. You had left Antony and put yourself under his shroud, the universal landlord. Um, and again, that kind of emphasis of the three that triumvirate have become down to one with Caesar ruling all, the universal landlord, and that she would kind of be protected by him. Um, and this is where it comes into play. She bides time. She asks, what's your name? Yeah, she's um, then kind of thinking about it. And it's uh, and her, her response is, she says, I kiss his conquering hand. Tell him I am prompt. In other words, I quickly lay my crown at his feet and there to kneel. We have to consider, is she playing a political game? And if she is, it's really cunning. Because if this message comes back to Caesar that she's done so, then is he going to make a move so then Antony and Cleopatra can come up with a, a plan B as an alternative of how to defeat him further. So it's really, really astute that she might play this. It's also rather dangerous too. It could backfire. But we know that Cleopatra, her love and emotion towards Antony seems so strong, it feels doubtful that she would just be so willing to give him up to Caesar um, to become essentially... Um, his tenant in the world, if we look at it that way through that metaphor. Um, so he essentially, we, we kind of get the asides from Enobarbus to show this dilemma um, that he has in terms of his loyalty. But Shakespeare never allows us to have asides from Cleopatra, so we don't get an insight into her mind and into her wider objective um, and ultimately we know ironically he's going to choose interest over honor and he will live to regret it whereas it seems to be here that Cleopatra is not she's choosing the most honorable and integral approach and will still die but not through that regret she has done the moral thing if that makes sense she's not choosing self-interest although it seems on the surface she is here we know that she's got potentially an ulterior motive. Um, so she um, kiss, he, she gives her hand. Give me grace to lay my duty on your hand. He kisses her hand. And now this is what's going to essentially rile Antony's anger and passion. Um, so Cleopatra describes, you know, you're Caesar's father oft when he hath mused of taking kingdoms bestowed his lips on that unworthy place as it rained kisses. So there's this kind of reminder of what had happened with her relationship with Julius Caesar and that, you know, it's a great honour to kiss Cleopatra's hands as well. Um, and Antony comes in and sees this and ultimately he sees the scene of betrayal. Why would a messenger of Caesar kiss Cleopatra's hand? He thinks that she has given him up to Caesar and that she's accepted his his treaties in many ways. And we get a less noble side of Antony comes out. He um, begins, you know, he will whip the messenger, take hence this jack and whip him. Um, and there are real echoes of Cleopatra in Act 2, Scene 5. And the parallel is that their passionate natures are easily provoked to beyond control. 
They are characters of infinite variety and extremes. Yeah. Um, so we, I love this bit where he, um, he kind of says, you know, uh, the, the, the kind of panic, he says, I am Anthony yet. And in many ways we kind of be going, it was, is this all the intention as well? Was she just trying to get some type of like fire from Anthony, you know, before in the scene, in the scene when we saw him prior, it was uh, love. I am full of lead. Um, and he seemed to have kind of give, given up a little bit and put in entreaties, whereas this might spur him to fight. And maybe that's what Cleopatra is wanting him to do, potentially. Um, and that we have the whipping um, of Thidius. Um, But I love that, you know, he says, I am lost. I've lost myself. Whereas here he's like, I'm Antony. I'm Antony again. I am Antony yet. Um, and he kind of finds his identity again, even if it's just for the small moment. And even if it's, a you know, a potentially a less noble side of him, at least he's got his kind of fire back in his belly. Um, so <clears throat> if we kind of look at the, um, the Enobarbus's even aside says, "'Tis better playing with a lion's whelp than with an old dying one." Um, so that kind of imagery of a young lion, "'Tis better playing with a young lion than with an old dying one," um, is that kind of metaphor of Antony being the old dying one rather than the young one, because um, ultimately an old lion might uh, essentially feel like it's being backed into a corner and might react in this manner. It's it's aggressive. It's angry. It's it's embittered. Um, but it's maybe also suggesting that, um, see, Enobarbus knows he's going to defer to Caesar because actually he might gain more from with the younger one than playing with the irrational, um, uncontrollable Antony in many different ways. It seems to be his his decision is becoming much more resolute in his asides. Um, Antony then turns on Cleopatra. And his language becomes really aggressive and really hateful towards her. So, you know, uh, he, he says, uh, so saucy with the hand of she here. What's her name? Since she was Cleopatra. And there is something so accusatory about that. He's like, I don't even recognize you. He, you know, uses her, he uses those pronouns of she, her. It's so dismissive and embittered in tone. And there's this kind of trying to play with him, like Mark Antony with Thidias, and it's like, take him away. And um, this Jack of Caesar shall bear us an errand to him. So this is all vengeance. And in many ways, poor Thidias, again, the messenger is being beaten because of the bad message that they're delivering, essentially. It's not necessarily his fault or his responsibility, but he's surely going to, you know, incur the wrath, um, as we saw the, the wrath of the messenger, uh, the wrath of Cleopatra on the messenger in Act 2. Um, so Antony turns to Cleopatra and he describes her as, you were half blasted, I knew you. In other words, you're withered. It's kind of like you're getting older. Um, and then he laughs at her. Have I my pillow left unpressed in Rome for born the getting of a lawful race and by a gem of a woman to be abused by one that looks on feeders? So in other words, he's like, have I left the wrong woman and to have a gem, you know, a gem of her, a lawful race, in other words, children with her, something legitimate and pure and beautiful to be with you, essentially. And there's that contrast. He insults her royal state at that point. Um, and it's really derogatory. And he then says, you have been a boggler 
ever. In other words, he calls her like a shifty one or a whore or a strumpet. Um, and he's he gets really even more angry. He says, the wise gods seal our eyes in our own filth, drop our clear judgments, make us adore our errors. So in other words, he's kind of like, you've corrupted me. Um, you, are, we're, you are corruption. You've taken me on. Um, and you've, you've withered me to this kind of lump of an angry man, essentially. And you've made me make all these bad decisions. He's, he's laying a lot of this at her her feet um and it's probably just anger and passion is it the kiss of the hand or is it potentially the defect to caesar that's provoked this it's it's something for us to consider it could be both and what's really interesting even cleopatra like can't get a word in here it's very similar to when they were when cleopatra was on one of her moods and she's having a rant with antony and he's like you know kind of uh queen let me speak so in in kind of act one it's structurally a bit of an echo of that but there's obviously that reversal um and he uses what's really interesting is derogatory imagery of food to describe cleopatra and this isn't the first time this has come up and again it's something to think about of uh, if you look at the notes on food and sex and this idea of consumption um and the mouth and taste and being satisfied comes up over and over again and it's actually a common trope within um within shakespeare's plays as well um he describes cleopatra as a morsel cold upon dead Caesar's trencher. Um, you are a fragment. So in other words, like you're just leftover food. You were a scrap that I picked you up with. Um, and like you've been used and chewed over by multiple men. Really, really derogatory in terms of how she's being described. Um, and he insults even her emotion. He says, you know, you can guess what temperance should be. You know not what it is. In other words, that you, you're you vulgar, you're hothead, you're passionate. And he kind of denounces her for all of the things that he loved about her and was attracted by her. So it seems this is to kind of hurt, essentially, is the, is the kind of intention behind this. And he keeps going. Um, you know, he's a betrayed man. And what he uses is lots of religious illusions um, from kind of line 125 to 133-ish. Um, and it's the, the anger is kind of natural and to be expected, he says, essentially. Like that's, that's I, I'm, I, these feelings I'm feeling are normal, is what any, any other man would say. And then the servant comes in, and as we saw in the National Theatre production, you know, scarred on the back. I love the decision that finds me to kind of pour alcohol into his back as further punishment. Um, really, really, really visually aggressive scene. Um, and it's further humiliation um, and that he sends the whipped Thidias back to inform Caesar of his anger. Um, and Antony says all of this, um, if you look at that kind of from 138 down to 156, he says, look, thou say, he makes me angry with him. So ultimately the scars, and I love how he describes them as stripes later on. Um, he says essentially that that's how angry Caesar's made him feel. Um, it's a real visual um, symbol of Antony's rage. And it's really quite violent. Um, the violence happens on stage. We see the aftermath. Very typical of kind of Greek tragedy as well. And Shakespeare's playing on that kind of classical unity as well. Um, he even says he seems proud and disdainful, harping on what I am. So on Antony's line, when he's saying, um, you know, he seems proud and disdainful, harping on what I am, not what he knew I was. It seems that Antony reveals his frustration that Caesar is not recognizing his um, reputation from the past and that he's focusing on potentially the flaws that are happening now and not giving Antony his, his dues in many ways. Um, so as, if we continue on, 
and something to kind of think about of whether or not is his whipping of Thidius, um cruel or is it an appropriate tit for tat? Um, is his anger, um, does it have its origins in genuine, is its origins in the, in the kiss that Thidius landed on Cleopatra's hand? Or is it, uh, you know, the betrayal uh, that she might have had on him by turning to Caesar? Is that the catalyst for it? Or is it, this is an opportunity to seek vengeance purely on Caesar himself? And um, so there, there are kind of multiple ways in which this sequence can be looked at. And I love the imagery in the next few lines, kind of line 150. He he says, he makes me angry. Um, you know, when my good stars that were my former guides have empty left their orbs and shot their fires into the abysm of hell. So Antony kind of uses this imagery of light and dark that um, at one time his fires, you know, his good stars were his guidance, you know, um, his honor, his reputation, all of those different things um, that were shining and now they've gone and they've went into the fires of hell. Um, so he's kind of in darkness and losing himself. Um and then he gives the the kind of um, the direct appeal of if he doesn't like what Antony said or what he's done, then tell him he has Hipparchus, my enfranched bondman. So in other words, uh, someone who who went essentially um, who who kind of left left um, Antony, and he says he can have you know a mere pleasure whip or hang or torture as he shall like to quit me. In other words, do with him what you want. And it's quite shocking imagery and doesn't blot Antony's honour and reputation because we saw previously his intent on uh, not being like that, not being vindictive in many ways, but actually being an honourable capsman or captain. Um, and it, does he kind of disregard that really quickly. So at the end of that sequence, we can look on that it, this kind of what was public scene of humiliation and a public kind of retort to um, Caesar's demands, it then becomes arguably more private. It's the it's the issues and the complications now that exist between Antony and Cleopatra and him addressing what he sees as her potential betrayal of him. Um, and what's brilliant is essentially we see Antony maybe being a little bit um, vulnerable and paranoid. He describes uh, her as being, you know, our terrain moon is now eclipsed and all pretends alone the fall of Antony. In other words, I don't recognize you. Um, you you've kind of, you've, you, this earthly goddess has, has gone. Um, it's, it's, it's disappeared. I, d I don't recognize you at all anymore. Um, and Cleopatra does try and assert like, I must stay this time. Antony's anger kind of is starting to get the best of him. Um, and in many ways we could argue it's, it's kind of mimicking somewhat her um, the role reversal that they went on from Act One, Scene One, in which she was leading, prompting questions, and he was struggling to get a word in. Maybe perhaps this scene plays out in similar ways. Um, and her question, I love this bit. You know, no, not no, not know me yet. In other words, are you really thinking that I, you know, would be trying to flatter Caesar by by indulging a servant? It seems to be that all along she's had ulterior motives in this um, exchange between her as a monarch and him as a servant, that Antony's kind of misread and she, her rhetorical question demands that. And Antony responds, you know, cold-hearted toward me. Um, in other words, it means you've got no feeling. And, and she re retorts in a, in a sense of, it, could, it couldn't be the opposite of cold-hearted. And I love the next bit where there's lots of hyperbole in her language. And she there's this paradoxical image of coldness that she uses to actually suggest her heat and her passion and her love for Antony. So that image of, you know, from my cold heart, let heaven engender heal and poison it in the source. Um, and she talks about, you know, the next Caesarean smite together with my brave Egyptians that will all lie graveless till the flies and gnats of the Nile have buried them for their prey. Um, and I love that kind of slightly 
apocalyptic um, and plague-like imagery that she evokes death on herself, on Caesarean, and then all of Egypt if she is cold-hearted towards Antony. Um, and she essentially she's saying, I, I'm, I'm not, I could be anything far from that. I'm far from, far from feeling cold-hearted towards you. And actually it's a response which satisfies Antony. He, he says really clearly and explicitly, I am satisfied. Um, and it suggests that actually Cleopatra is wily as well, that she has a motive that even Antony is not too sure of how to read her intentions. Um, but we get a much more sense of a fractured couple um, at the beginning of this kind of scene, and now we see that they're the kind of power couple that they once used to be are back on form, and we see them at full force. Um, and Antony kind of finds his belly and his fire um, once he's kind of reunited with Cleopatra. He, you know, asks that rhetorical question on 176, where has thou been, my heart? There's a sense that almost like he he has rediscovered himself. Um, it's like his heart has just been missing. You know, do you hear it? Um, and he kind of is impassioned and um, finds his identity again in kind of being reunited with her in, in terms of that she's got his back. Um, not just as in terms of that, you know, she loves him intently, but like she she supports his decision. She wants kind of the best for him as well. Um, and I love that image of to kiss these lips, I will appear in blood. I and my sword will earn our chronicle. There's hope in it yet. Antony kind of revives himself here as both a soldier and a lover. Um, and those identities and that kind of new confidence has kind of re helped him rediscover that military identity and rallied the strength that seemed to have gone from Antony. You know, when that scene, few scenes prior, when he said, love, I am full of lead. Here he seems to be, you know, essentially the image of plated Mars and glowing and the, the, the kind of energy of his heart bursting through his armour is the image that comes back again. Um, and it's been missing for a while. And in many ways, this could be seen as, is this a moment of potential redemption for Antony? He says, there's hope in it yet. Um, this is kind of a, we need this. This is a potential moment of redemption for the hero. This is the equivalent of the, in Streetcar, that, that scene in which, we see that Blanche and Mitch just might get it together. It's that moment of we need a bit of, of glimmer of hope. And this this is it for us. And it rallies Cleopatra, you know, that's my brave lord as well. And he wants to fight maliciously, treble senued, hearted, breathe it, and fight maliciously. And that triple that, you know, he's he's kind of full of energy and confidence. Um and he, you know, wants one more gaudy night. He kind of like wants a last big bang and celebration before he goes out and there's that bravado with it. And Line 190 is really interesting because she says, you know, since my Lord is Antony again, I will be Cleopatra. This idea that they're, they've kind of lost their identities at some point and now they've kind of rallied them together. And actually when one rediscovers himself, the other rediscovers, it's like the two can't be viewed separately. And in many ways, we know that the, the, the historic reference of those two lovers, that they do go hand in hand with one another. Um, but they want more kind of um, fun night in Egypt before it. And he talks about, call, you know, call all my noble lords. Uh, tonight I'll force the wine peep through their scars. Um, and then I love how this newfound confidence that Antony has. He's like, I will frighten death himself. So the personification of death, he's like, the next time I do fight, I'll make death love me. For I will contend even with his pestilence scythe. He's almost got this bravado where he's like, I can conquer death. Like, death doesn't intimidate me whatsoever. Death is going to love me because, you know, I'm going to kill so many different people. I'll actually be killing more people than, than death can. Um, so there's that kind of, it's a, it's a real the hyperbole in that, in that kind of uh, image is, is striking. And there is something admirable about Antony's confidence. Um, 
So as Anthony leaves with confidence and with energy and bravado and, you know, sheer masculinity, Ina Barbas ends the act and he ends the act in despair. And we get that soliloquy that he offers us. Um, you know, even that line of now he'll outstare the lightning. It's almost mocking in tone. Um, and, you know, this is this has been a scene full of hyperbole and Ina Barbas mocks that, like, oh yeah, now he's going to conquer lightning. He thinks he can do anything. But Ina Barbas feels differently, that Antony's um, has lost all judgment, has lost all perspective. And he essentially talks about that he can see a, a diminution in our captain's brain, how it restores his heart. In other words, he's losing his mind and that's what's making his heart spur. But actually, Ina Barbas makes the decision by the end of this act that he needs to choose with his head rather than with his heart. And his head tells him he needs to leave Antony because Antony, he feels, is making reckless and impulsive decisions based on pride. Um, and he says that in his last line, I will seek some way to leave him. And this moment in which Ina Barbas deserts him, um, he chooses self-interest over honour, and that's something which he's been wrangling with. And at this point, we think that, that all the evidence points to that that's a sensible decision to make. However, we know that it's a decision that Ina Barbas will regret and will ultimately die because of it so it's a it's a scene of extreme emotions um but it's a wonderful one in terms of kind of um you know looking at surges of jealousy and despair and fear and fury and bravado to then utter shame um and uh, bitterness at the end of it it's it's a fantastic scene so i really recommend that you go through act three again because so much happens in it it's a really lengthy act um but it's one in which there are some really brilliant key ideas and uh, images that Shakespeare has been repeating from prior in um, in the play that we've done so far. So we'll leave it there. Uh, join me next time when we will start Act 4.